We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast. Up the Duff is a podcast for fertility seekers and those who are curious about procreation. Join us as we speak to experts and hear from real people on their fertility journeys. We ask the hard questions and help them navigate to solutions on the sometimes bumpy road that is to parenthood. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. They are setting the new standard in ingestibles for reproductive system health for both males and females. Make sure you check them out at esfertility.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Up the Duff podcast. Today I'm joined by Gabriella Rossa, who is a clinical researcher and fertility specialist. She's currently based in Boston, USA, because she's undertaking further research and studies at Harvard University. This episode, we do talk about miscarriages, so do take care in listening. We talk everything miscarriage, why they occur, what are some of the underlying causes and investigations that you can undertake? Does IVF help with miscarriages? Are there any medical or genetic conditions that may predispose you or make you more prone to miscarriages? And most importantly, following a miscarriage, how do you get started? When is safe to start trying? And what can you do to try and reduce your risk of further miscarriages? With one in four pregnancies in Australia, ending in miscarriage. If this is you, if this is your friend, you're going to take home lots of little nuggets from my chat with Gabriella. So let's get into it. Welcome, Gabriella. I'm so happy to have you here on the Up the Duff podcast. Today, we are going to be discussing miscarriage. So trigger warning to anyone um, that may find this topic difficult, do take care and reach out to Pink Elephants if you do need support. Now, miscarriage is such a tricky topic, but it is something that so many women experience. Gabriella, with all your experience working in the fertility world, do you mind telling us what is a miscarriage and also how common is it? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. I think miscarriage, you hit the nail on the head. It's one of those situations where there is so much grief that can often be associated with miscarriage because it's almost the lost hope and particularly for couples who have been struggling to conceive and to get pregnant to begin with, when a miscarriage occurs, it's almost doubly devastating because not only all of a sudden, finally, we have a positive pregnancy test and then all of a sudden it's it's no longer there or we go through a really traumatic experience. You know, unfortunately, three out of four pregnancies actually do end up in miscarriage. So you can imagine that it really is one of those extremely common situations. And unfortunately, because it is so common, there is a, a conversation around it being the luck of the draw or it being a bit of a numbers game, which I'm so highly against. Whenever I hear this, it's a numbers game, I do have to say that the, the hair in the back of my neck stands up a little bit. You can imagine and I've been doing this now for 23 years. And, uh, it is one of those situations where in two decades, the types of couples that come to us, they typically have been infertile for many years. We conducted a study, which was a part of my master's in public health at Harvard, and we were able to ascertain that out of 544 patients, which was the population in our particular study, we had a seven-year analysis, and we were able to, to see that 51.5% of couples who came to us had previously experienced a miscarriage. After treatment, 
that rate dropped to 13.5%. And in the general population, we would expect around a 15% miscarriage rate. So you can imagine for the majority of those people being told it's a numbers game or it's a luck of the draw. And when we actually get into treating that case, we see that there are so many complex pieces that are interplaying in that situation and that it is hardly a numbers game or hardly lack of the draw. You know, that's where my frustration comes in. And because miscarriages are so common, they often get dismissed quite regularly. And, you know, one of the things that I often see, particularly for women who are older, you see, when you have a miscarriage, let's say, for example, you know, that we get a pregnancy to an eight-week gestation period. So if you get a pregnancy to eight weeks and you have a miscarriage at the eight-week month, which is one of the most common timeframes where people will go for their first ultrasound and see that there is no heartbeat. And if you do get to that stage, what typically will occur is that it will take your body a approximately about however long you were pregnant to get back to baseline in terms of hormonal balance, right? And so that's four months down the track. Then let's say that you start trying to conceive again and let's just assume for the purposes of the example that we have another six months or six conception attempts of trying to get pregnant before we get another positive pregnancy test. That's already 10 months down the track. Now, let's assume again that we go to another eight weeks gestation. That's another two months. We're, we're talking about a year, mm -hmm. right? And if we go past that year, and that's with one miscarriage, if you go past that year and you take a pregnancy to term, that's wonderful. But if, it, if, if another miscarriage occurs, that cycle starts again. And all of a sudden, we are back at two years of trying to figure out what's going on before we actually have a positive pregnancy test again, right? Now, imagine if you're 39, 40, 41, 42, which is when many of our patients are coming to us after 40, you don't have time for a luck of the draw mm -hmm. <laughs> type conversation, right? That is going to take you another 12 months to be able to get back at square one again. So that's why it's so important when we talk about miscarriages and even if it's the first miscarriage, or, and this is equally important for couples who go through IVF to understand because at any time where you have an egg and a sperm together, you end up with an embryo and you have an embryo transfer you are pregnant at the time of that transfer. There are no two ways about it. Whether that pregnancy continues to term or continues to a positive pregnancy test, that's a different conversation altogether. But a pregnancy is in place at the time of an embryo transfer. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm just thinking numbers, 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 right? Like, Women are thinking about AMH, how many eggs were retrieved? How many embryos do I have? You know, how many miscarriages have I had? You know, it's just all numbers. And if you're told it's a numbers game, it's just like so overwhelming. Yeah, it can be and really overwhelming. Ticking. Whenever we have either failed fertility treatment or we have a chemical pregnancy or we have a miscarriage in my clinic and to me as a clinician, I'm actually treating all of those things as exactly the same thing. 
as if they were a miscarriage because it is at that point that I can actually intervene. It's at that point that I can understand more. Every one of those injunction points, there is a possibility of changing strategies if we understand why it's occurring and what is getting in the way of getting a positive pregnancy test, what's getting in the way of getting the outcome that we're looking for. So, you know, this is one of the biggest reasons as to why when people say to me, oh, I've had a miscarriage and they sweep it under the carpet mm. or they're told by their doctors, oh, don't worry about it, just keep trying, no matter how old you are. And I say this to my 30-year-old patients in the same way that I say it to my 40-year-old patients, no matter how, whatever your age is, no matter what has happened for you and what has led you to either see a positive pregnancy test and not end up with a baby, right, or know that you've had an embryo transferred and not end up with a baby, those are the places where we need to ask many more deeper questions if we are to get a fast result to the outcome that we are looking for, as opposed to what happens to many of my patients, keep going around in circles and, mm. you know, for some, unfortunately, they run out of time trying. Yeah. You know, that really yeah. is the sad part. I do find that, you know, what's common practice is, you know, have two or three miscarriages and then we'll investigate. And like you were saying, time just gets away from you and it just, if you don't have time to lose. Um, so let's talk about investigations. What are some of the things um, that you will typically investigate or look for if you are looking at someone who's having either one or multiple miscarriages, whether it's IVF or natural conception? Yeah. Uh I'll definitely talk about that. But one thing that you said, I want to actually really reiterate because I think it's important for people to understand, you know, if they're listening to this podcast, even beyond what tests they could do, I think it's so important for them to understand that the reason as to why when they go to a doctor, a doctor will say, you haven't had three miscarriage yet, miscarriages yet, we're not going to investigate until you've had three miscarriages, is because of the way in which the healthcare system is structured, right? And really, the healthcare system is designed to do the very, 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 very minimal <laughs> or least for the most number of people. So if we think about it in those terms, most and, and all guidelines around the world in every healthcare system, which we couples in every continent other than Antarctica. So we deal with every healthcare system in the world. And the biggest healthcare systems, they really are looking at how do we restrain, how do we contain resources expenditure? How do we actually decrease the amount of money that we use for tests or, or things that are unnecessary? so that we can actually utilize those resources in different ways. The important thing to realize is this, is that for a couple who either has been trying to conceive for some time or a woman who might be older or a man who has sperm problems or a combination of all of those different types of factors or failed IVF treatments or previous miscarriages, all of those types of pieces that we've been talking about you are no longer a part of the general population when it comes to what should be done or what shouldn't be done for your particular situation. And here's why. In the general population, the vast majority of patients or couples conceive without trying. Literally, it's that conversation of, oh, whoops, I wasn't trying and I got pregnant, or it's the, it's the drunken one-night stand that we hear about, right? Or it's like the person who didn't really want to be pregnant but accidentally is. Well, that is actually what is normal in the general population, believe it or not. And so what happens is that these guidelines start to be put into place to prevent expenditures that are unnecessary 
to address issues that are not there. Quote, unquote, three out of four miscarriages and the miscarriage, therefore, it's normal in the general population. Nor, I would say not normal, but common in the general population. And therefore, when you go to a doctor, you have to push back, right? So you are never going to go to a doctor and just be told, sure, we can do all of the tests that you want for everything you could possibly imagine, okay? Unless there is a conversation about either previous history, previous failed treatment, other potential issues, potential uh, medical history. So all of those things will actually need to go into building a case. They're not just going to open up their prescription pad and go, oh, mm -hmm. let's order every possible test that there is. And even when they are in that camp of being super supportive and just really very happy to help, um, they usually are going to do things in stages. Okay, and I think that that's an important thing for us to, to, to discuss here and talk about here because there are a multitude of tests. There are thousands of tests that you could get done. And what gets requested is going to be narrowed down dependent on a variety of factors for that particular couple. The place where it's dangerous is where we have all of these signals or these red flags and nothing substantial gets done or only one part of the equation, i.e. the female gets tested and the male is ignored. Or, you know, there's lots of these variations of, of things. One thing I will say is that even though we're going to talk about testing and some of the things that are useful for people to consider and for people to think about, most of the time they will go and have these tests done and even some doctors don't really know how to interpret tests in the best possible way. And I'm not saying that facetiously at all. I'm just saying that let's take the example of thyroid function test, right, or TSH. TSH in the general population has a wild range of, of result as being considered normal. When really, when we talk about TSH for the purposes of, you know, preventing miscarriage, we really need to understand what is the optimal range, right? So if you go and have a look at a TSH result that you, most people will have been tested for TSH, a thyroid stimulating hormone when it comes to miscarriage. And if they haven't, that's a big clue that there's lots being left on the table. But, you know, you will go and you do your TSH and the range will be somewhere around zero points, depending on the lab, depending on the country, let's say, for the sake of this example, because in Australia, it's kind of like this, say 0.2 to 5 international units per milliliter. If a woman tests below 5, when the top of the range is 5, it will be considered by a general practitioner or GP as normal. It may even still be considered as normal if one or two miscarriages or even three miscarriages have occurred because it's within the range. However, if we look at population data and if we look at you know, studies that are published in this area in terms of miscarriages and where the levels of TSH should be when we're talking about miscarriage and miscarriage prevention, you will see that 2.3 is the upper range of the limit of optimal when it comes to looking at miscarriage rate. Okay, so if a woman tests anywhere between 2.3 and 5 and has experienced miscarriages, guess what? That TSH, even being within range, is abnormal. Mm. Now, mind you, TSH fluctuates. There's lots of variation. There's lots of reasons as to why it might be elevated. It could be an iodine deficiency and it could be an autoimmune condition. Yeah. Whatever that difference might be, 
if it's an autoimmune condition, if it's Hashimoto's, guess what? There will be other immunological components that will also be affecting the ability to keep a pregnancy to term. So all of a sudden, immunological causes of infertility need to be investigated even further. Uh, if we're just talking about a nutritional deficiency, iodine is low, therefore we're not processing our thyroid hormones in the same way and activating the thyroid hormones in the same way that we ideally would like to. That's going to re increase the risk of miscarriage. But the reason as to why it's happening is not immunological. It's a nutritional deficiency. Yeah. So can you see, it's, it seems very simple. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I see that thyroid picture in clinic nearly every single day, as probably you do. And Iodine deficiency is something that's so common in Australia and I get so much reluctance um, from GPs or other doctors about testing urinary iodine, um, which is so incredibly frustrating because throwing thyroxin at a TSH yeah. to reduce it, you know, if it's a nutritional deficiency is just crazy. Is it the same in the States? Yeah. With um, with I in relation to iodine, it's, it's the same around the world. Yeah. I mean, usually urinary iodine, the best way is going to be to do functional testing. But even when you are iodine deficient, you're not just looking at iodine. You have to look at all of your other nutrients because it's very likely that if your iodine is low, mm. your vitamin D is going to be low, uh, your calcium, magnesium, chromium, your um, your copper zinc ratio is going to be out. You know, there's a whole lot of things that are going to be selenium as well if you for have sure that as a red flag. Exactly. And this is what I'm saying about having to do things in stages. Mm -hmm. Is that you're not going to go and test the entire population for iodine deficiency. It's just not going to happen. What ha what has been done about that? Iodine has been added to salt because it's such a common cause and and policy when it comes to health policy, we know it's such a common cause that we found a very easy solution for that problem, which is let's just put iodine in salt and then everything is going to be fine. But then we also know that there are people who are who can't have iodine in salt and who shouldn't be having iodine in salt because of the opposite, you know, mm. problem of Graves' disease and, you know, other kind of issues in terms of thyroid. And so what ends up happening is that there's a variation of some salt has has um, iodine, some salt doesn't, the majority doesn't, and it's not until you actually know whether you should be on it or not that you would actually think to supplement in that particular way. And so, you know, it really becomes a situation where we have to take a case-by-case -case scenario and really not look at, okay, this is the thing that we do for every one of our patients. You know, I often talk about this, this example, and I think that this is a good example to demonstrate in terms of miscarriage. Whenever I see a man, you know, you can line up 10 men with motility issues in terms of sperm, you know, sperm that's not swimming as effectively as it could. You could line up 10 men with motility issues. And if you really dig deep into the background and what's happening for those people, you can find 10 different reasons as to why motility is low. So whatever the result you're experiencing, whether it's inability to conceive, inability to keep a healthy pregnancy to term, failed IVF treatments, these are all outcomes. Even poor egg, you know, poor egg quality, these are outcomes of many biochemical chain reactions that have started way beforehand, you know, kind of mm -hmm. really upstream. And so what happens is that when we have these situations that are not the norm, which are the types of patients that we would be treating, 
right? We are having to really kind of dig deep and, and peel these layers of why these biochemical chain reactions are actually not working. At, at what point are they starting to fail or are they starting to break down? Because that then, you know, really triggers us as clinicians to go, okay, if these are the, the pathways that are breaking down and these are the pathways that are not operating to the best of their ability, what else do I need to follow up on? What else do I need to learn? You know, I talk to my patients often about understanding the gaps and the places of opportunity. If we don't know those pieces, we end up leaving a lot of chance on the table. So there are things that we need to know, like the obvious things, like nutritional deficiencies, genetic causes, hormonal imbalances, immunological components. There will be anatomical causes, and there's many reasons for that. Those are all things that then need to be tested in different ways because there's things like endometriosis and adenomyosis and, you know, lots of different types of, of conversations. Ashman's is one of the things because people often will be more likely to develop Ashman's because of having failed IVF treatment. That becomes something that we need to take into account. And there's only so many hysteroscopies and laparoscopies you can have mm. to address some of these, you know, more anatomical causes. But infections, infections and bacterial overgrowth, microbiome issues from in the sperm as well. We did a meta-analysis in the clinic and we looked at the the effect of um, bacteria, bacterial vaginosis uh, associated bacteria, and its impact on sperm parameters. And we saw a huge correlation between partners of women who had previously had bacterial vaginosis and had a history of bacterial vaginosis and poor sperm parameters across all sperm parameters. You know, so. We know that those factors of infections, whether viral, parasitic, bacterial, you know, when we look at uh, toxoplasmosis and blastocystis hominis, you know, all of these parasitic things that you typically wouldn't really think about it too much become really important to rule out when we are experiencing multiple miscarriages. You know, then, of course, you've got your thrombophilic, your mm -hmm. kind of thrombotic disorders, which can sometimes be genetic. You've got the metabolic function issues, inflammatory issues. You know, it, there's there's so much scope. There's so many different things. And that's where taking a really good history, understanding really clearly what are all of the things that are getting in the way and how we're going to go and address those. So it sounds like there are so many investigations that could be done. It's about teaming up with a clinician that can take that really thorough history and really be a, your fertility detective um, to find what are the most likely causes of that miscarriage. And I'm assuming you're testing both partners if, if it's a couple, if it's a heterosexual couple. We are always absolutely 100%. And even if it's not, when we deal with same-sex couples that have a known donor, we will actually work with both partners, you know, both, both people uh, at mates. the same time. <laughs> but what you're saying is that yeah, exactly. Um, but what you're saying is absolutely on point. You know, like in our clinic, we absolutely will always test both people. And for uh, fear of repeating myself, but I think that this is such an important point to reiterate, it's looking at what is optimal in those test results, doing the right tests and doing the right tests at the right time as well. Yeah. I want to ask another question. A lot of people who uh, end up having recurrent miscarriages, and I hope that this podcast will uh, empower people to take action before they get to that multiple miscarriages point. But is IVF able to help with miscarriages? 
It's a great question. And the short answer is maybe. Maybe. And why is the short answer maybe? <laughs> there may be factors that are happening that are to do with genetic buildup of an embryo in terms of chromosomes that are going to be able to be pregenetically screened for. And we will be able to know, okay, are we actually uh, transferring euploidy embryos and are they healthy and is it all working well? In those situations, IVF is going to be the very best option for overcoming miscarriage, not just infertility, but overcoming miscarriage. For the rest of the population, which is about 95%, it's not the best way to address miscarriage, right? So just to be told that, oh, yes, you know, you should go, you're having miscarriages, you should go and do IVF, is actually not great advice because, one, it's expensive, two, it has a major impact on the system, on the body, it has a major impact on, on the emotional component. You know, stress is pretty high through IVF cycles. And it doesn't actually address the issues that are need, that are making you actually, quote unquote, need IVF to begin with. You know, yeah. there were a couple of studies that were performed looking at um, the effect of an, IV, an uh, infertility diagnosis and all-cause mortality, so increased risk of all, you know, all types of early premature death from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancers, and so on. And what it was, what it showed was that for for people who were diagnosed with infertility, who went on to use IVF, they conceived, and some of them had babies, but the the increased risk of all causes of death later was higher amongst the people who basically tried to bypass infertility, so to speak. And this was demonstrated in both men and women. Mm. So what does that mean? Let's put it in this way. Let's say, for example, another very simple example, insulin resistance. How common is insulin resistance, you know, in most people who are trying to conceive, who are having difficulty? It's highly common. You know, it appears in pre-diabetic conditions. It appears for people with PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. You know, insulin resistance is pretty common. Now, we know that if we don't address insulin resistance by good, healthy diet, lifestyle, you know, all of those things, you're much, much, much more predisposed to developing diabetes down the track, right? Now, think about what happens when you go through an IVF cycle. You know, you, most women put on weight after IVF. If you go through a pregnancy, most people will put on weight after IVF. Breastfeeding, I mean, I put on 20 kilos during breastfeeding. I tell you, it was a disaster. Um, you know, so what happens is unless you then have means and ways of addressing that, if we let entropy take hold, guess what's going to happen? You're never going to lose that weight, mm. right? And your, bio, your biochemical and your biological makeup is going to be worse off because of that, right? So what's going to end up happening is that most likely because of time, age, excess weight, lack of exercise, you know, all of those things, you are most likely going to develop diabetes. Now, we know clearly if we develop diabetes, are we likely to have the same lifespan, the same quality of life that we are if we don't develop diabetes? Absolutely not. So it's yeah. actually pretty obvious that not addressing causes of infertility and miscarriage 
can lead to an increased risk of all-cause mortality regardless. And miscarriages is another one of these things. You know, let's say, for example, if we have immunological conditions or, you know, thrombotic conditions, um, antiphospholipid antibodies is a great example, very common when it comes to miscarriages. And it increases the risk of clotting, which increases the risk of stroke, cardiovascular disease, and other cardiovascular events. So not just miscarriage. You know, it, it certainly increases the risk of miscarriage. But think about it from that perspective. Let's say that the reason as to why we've had five miscarriages is because of antiphospholipid antibodies, and we're not addressing it. And it's not just to address by taking a, 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 an aspirin, a baby aspirin every day, because sure, you could do that, but still not address all of the other biochemical mm cascades that are going to be impacted because of APS, because of antiphospholipid syndrome, that are going to increase your risk of stroke down the track, right? So when you ask me, and again, this is another one of those moments where I kind of go, mm, I don't know <laughs> that yeah. uh, it's the best strategy, you know? And of course, there is a reason as to why IVF is as popular as it is. It's easy. It's quick. It, you know, it provides immense profits. Uh, for a multi-billion dollar industry. So, you know, not wanting to be skeptical here, of course, it benefits many, many people. However, again, I'm forced to look at population level here and, you know, is that the best approach? No, not really. Yeah. I do think IVF creates a bit of a framework and, and takes the, some of the emotional burden away from the couple or the person trying to conceive though it's almost like you're handing control over and then you're just being told what to do which you know if it, sometimes it, it, you want to feel like there's something you can do and that you're doing everything you can and I, I feel like sometimes IVF can provide that for people as can di making diet and lifestyle changes um, empower people to feel like they're taking control and doing everything that they can as well yeah it's a trick definitely a tricky one yeah I think that for me, it's not even about being able to take control, right? For me, it's about clarity. It's like if you understand what is happening and why, and then from that place, you are in a, in a position to be able to make really fully informed decisions. For me, that's the win. You know, yeah. it might be because we, we still, there are some patients in our clinic that we still refer to going to IVF. You know, when we did our study, 78.8% of patients took home healthy babies. 47.7 conceived naturally and the remainder of our IVF. Only 5.6% of all of our patients, despite the vast majority being told that they needed donor egg, only 5.6% actually did. And so I look at that and I go, okay, I'm not anti-IVF. I think IVF is a brilliant, miraculous technology. I am completely against the overuse mm. the overuse and the lack of detail and comprehensive diagnostic the underdiagnosing that goes on when couples do end up going down the IVF path because doctors pretty much say to most patients oh you have motility issues or morphology morphology issues don't We'll just bypass that with IVF. Oh, I hate oh, when they say that. Quality issues, and you have nutritional deficiencies, and you have, you know, insulin resistance. Don't worry. We'll just bypass all of that with IVF. The drugs will take care of all of it. That 
is my biggest, biggest bugbear. You know, yeah. is when we are not getting clarity, we're not addressing these causes that will negatively impact someone's health in the future. I know that absolutely no prospective parent and no parent ever wants to make a decision between having a baby and or being there to raise their child. Because when they had the opportunity to optimize their health, they basically were just told, ah, don't worry about it. Yeah. Yeah. That to me is my biggest issue. Yeah. So um, I want to uh, jump into something really practical to finish up. Um, during the recruitment for season two, we asked people to um, give us their questions that they want us to ask our experts, one of them being you. Uh, so one of the questions that came up commonly was, I've had just had a miscarriage. Where do I start? What do I do? Can I start trying straight away? Do I keep taking my prenatal? Do I need to take other supplements? Do I need to do things differently? I know we've spoken about investigating and some lifestyle changes, but if you had someone in front of you right now and you've already written out all the tests that you see indicated, what are the other pieces of advice that you're giving them to go home with? The first question that you asked is, you know, can I start trying straight away? My answer always is no. And the reason that my answer is no is because of what I said very early on in this conversation. It takes time for your body to go back to baseline, right? So however long you have, and you know, most doctors will say, of course, just you know, start trying next cycle. I disagree completely. And the reason that I disagree is that the longest you've actually been pregnant, the more your body has recruited its nutrient resources, its mm. energy resources to developing that embryo. And you will need to recover all of that. You know, like we, there's a reason why women are told to have a three-year spacing between children optimally. And that is because by the time you've had your child and your placenta's out and you've lost 95% of your nutrient uh, re um, reserves and you then are breastfeeding, it takes time for your body to get back to nutritional reserve once more. Right. Things like, you know, most people don't even realize, but like things like iron deficiency can increase the risk of miscarriage. Right. Yeah. So it's about looking at, and if you've had a very traumatic miscarriage and you've bled a lot, guess what? You're most likely going to be iron deficient. So if you go and get pregnant again the next cycle, being iron deficient, being traumatized, your nutrient stores being imbalanced, your hormones being imbalanced, guess what? Are we in for the best ride of our lives here or are we in for potentially more issues that yeah. need to be taken into account? I, I think I about totally the folate load the as well. concern of absolutely. How and much I, folate I totally you lose. Get, yeah. you know, the concern that people have. Yeah, 100%. All of your nutrients, right? All of your nutrients. And the thing about it is that I totally get people's concern about, but hang on, I'm 39 and I need to get pregnant again. And I, again, Refer back to what we first talked about today, which is remember, if you are in a hurry to get pregnant and have a baby, that is when you should really take a step back, take a breather, figure out why these things are not actually working before going into the next thing. So when somebody is in front of me and they're telling me, you know, oh, but I really, I have to, I have to hurry up. You know, I, I have no time to waste. You have no time to waste having another miscarriage. Right. So looking at 
all of your exposures. And I always talk about act pregnant now to get pregnant later. That's the number one thing because most people will know, you know, what are the things that you should do? What are the things that you should avoid when you get pregnant? We're told about those. Those are public health messages that are around all the time. And they apply just as significantly when you are trying to get pregnant. You'll be amazed at how many people I see who come to me and are still drinking and smoking after having had a miscarriage. Right. So these things might seem basic to us, right? Yeah. But they're not basic conversations to be having with patients who are struggling because drug use, tobacco use, you know, um, alcohol use, all of these things, they are hugely prevalent in the general population. And that applies to both partners because guess what? 50% of that little baby you're wanting to create is already within you right now. I love that. Right. I love that so saying. These I, it makes such <laughs> sense. Like the DNA is just sitting there waiting with all that potential and everything that you do today and for the next three months is going to make such a difference. You know, the, the reality is that egg maturation, the egg maturation happens in two cycles and they are approximately six months each. You know, we talk about a minimum of 120 days of preconception preparation, but really when we're talking about improving egg quality, you improve the first stage of, of, of egg development, which is the closest to ovulation, the second stage, sorry. But the first stage from primordial follicle to primary follicle, there's a good six months in there of you know maturation steps that are required from a biochemical perspective so everything you do the nutrients your eggs are, are surrounded by the toxins that your eggs are surrounded by they're all going to make a difference and the same applies to sperm sperm has a maturation cycle that's much shorter but really realistically speaking when we're looking at results pra practical results and change biochemical change really you're talking about a good six to twelve months to to really truly see biochemical change now of course all of your red blood cells are going to be renewed and completely new within a four-month period so of course there is improvement that can be made in that four-month period but it doesn't stop there it's not like you know so many times people say to me oh okay i'll do this detox and then i'll start trying to get pregnant you know and they've they've done a detox for four for four months and then they basically go and do all the wrong things again and think that, well, that didn't work. Well, yes, because you need to continue it. <laughs> and I say always that fertility and the ability to take a healthy pregnancy to term, having a baby, is always a retrospective analysis. You will always only know if it worked after you're holding your baby. So until you're holding your baby is, um, is the time frame that it takes for you to do the things that you need to do to achieve the outcome that you are looking for. Not if, not, you know, whether. It's like you have to commit. It's like you, you commit to a process until either you are holding your baby or you've decided that you no longer want to try it, which is totally valid. You know, you might totally decide somewhere around that continuum that you're like, you know what, I've had patients, you know, in my 23 years of doing this work, I have patients that have literally after, you know, doing this for months and, you know, basically decide that, you know what, I don't want to have a baby anymore. I've decided this process has given me the clarity that I need that I don't want to keep doing this. Totally valid. Totally yeah. valid. Right. And it's not what we were asking them to do. It's the entire process. You yeah. know, the reality of it is that it, having a baby and going through fertility treatment and doing all of these things, 
it's not for everybody and it's totally okay for you to choose that no it's not for me or it's either never been for me it never will be for me or it's no longer for me those are all valid valid decisions at any point along the way yeah yeah it's your it's your own journey true well I think that's a really great um, way to end. Thank you so much, Gabriella, for the incredible pep talk. I feel I feel motivated. I'm not even trying for a baby, and I'm like, I'm gonna act as if I'm pregnant today. I'm like, so many pearls of wisdom and so much motivation for people who are trying to conceive out there. Thank you so much for your time. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We hope that you enjoyed that episode of the Up the Duff podcast and that you're feeling more supported on your fertility journey. If you haven't already done so, please leave us a review. It will help to spread the word and support many, many people on their fertility journey. A final shout out to this season's sponsor, ES Fertility. You can check them out at esfertility.com. Until next time.